Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an. जी हाँ आप अपने स्क्रीन पे देख सकते हैं कि हम लैंडर Hello and welcome to the August 2023 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham, or if you prefer in Persian... Richard Hollingham, Ruznamenegar of Ulum Fazai and Mojri Poit, podcast Space Boffins. Space Boffins in Persian, there you go. Space Boffins, I love it. One more time. Richard Hollingham, Ruznamenegar of Ulum Fazai and Mojri Poit, podcast Space Boffins. It's my debut on Persian, uh, BBC Persian TV, talking about the successful landing of the Chandrayaan uh, 3 rover. It wasn't really you, though, was it, Rich, when we hear you talking? I love the fact that, because obviously you sent me this on via text, and um, I, I sort of immediately looked at it, and it was like, oh my goodness, he speaks Persian now, because you start speaking off in English, and then instantly sort of in comes the translation. And uh, and because it's a man doing it, it almost sounds like you're speaking it, in it Persian. It was actually a, a pretty amazing experience. So simultaneous translation wow, is a phenomenal that's thing. That's difficult to do. Yeah. So when I was doing the interview, I didn't see myself back. So it's only when I see that back, which is it's on uh, Twitter or whatever yeah. Twitter calls itself now, you can actually watch X-Files-y, that. Yeah, yeah whatever it is. Yeah. So BBC. you can you can see that back. Um, but that was the only the first time I actually saw the presenter. So when I was doing it, it was on Zoom. I was there. I was nodding, looking like I understood the question. So I didn't understand the question. But all I was hearing was the translator. So that's why there's a gap between ah, right. the question okay. and the answer. But it's simultaneous translation. Absolutely phenomenal. That is very good because I know obviously in the in the past and we've had a few of these interviews on space boffins when i've interviewed a couple of um, cosmonauts and um, um alexi leonid was uh leonov leonov that's it beg your pardon thinking of the misha shout alexi leonov uh, was one of them and you have the translator there and often it's it's never quite what you expect in that you ask a really short question and then their version of it in russian went on for about two minutes and you're thinking, hmm, are they telling him what to say? Is the answer what's going on? But then it can also work the other way around. They can give you an answer that you're thinking, gosh, this this is going to be great because you might recognize the odd little English word in there that you think, oh, yeah, okay, I get that, get that. And then they give you, you know, yet, no. <laughs> She's like, eh? <laughs> but that was... Yeah, really? It was very, fast. very. I assumed it was no, pre recorded. Very impressive live. Ah, mm. good stuff. And I loved what you did with the top of the Space Boffins jingle there, Rich. I don't think I, I did notice it. A little that, bit of Indian moon landing. 
Excellent, excellent. And we, we will talk more about the moon later on. This time, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the first African-American in space and we'll be commemorating the fiery end to the Iolus mission in music. The tops of clouds would correspond to a piccolo because that's the highest instrument. And then the, the next highest instrument is the flute. So that was the, the density of clouds. And then going into wind temperature, pressure and uh, velocity. And that was represented by clarinets and oboes. 40 years ago, on the 30th of August 1983, Guy Bluford launched into orbit on the Challenger shuttle to become the first African-American in space. He was one of the 35 so-called new guys, despite there being women uh, in there, of course, selected for the shuttle programme. And he was one of three black astronauts in that group. The mission is featured in a brilliant new documentary film The Space Race about the experiences of the first black astronauts as well as the injustices and racism of the space program at the time. Here's an extract from the trailer. My mom and dad, you know, they always talked about possibility. But growing up in the Jim Crow South, you just, you knew what you could and couldn't do and you didn't press the system. You were taught you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to drink from that fountain because that's this white. So don't even think about it. And it was the same thing with NASA. I love the space program. I was enamored with it. But nobody doing that stuff looked like me. Well, the film tells the story not just of Guy Bluford, but the men who should have become astronauts in the 1960s, Ed Dwight and Bob Lawrence. We spoke to the directors of the film, Diego Hurtado de Mendoza and Lisa Cortez. I should just say that the audio on Lisa's line isn't great, but the interview is definitely worth it. The space race is definitely a story that's revealing a history that is unknown and that once people learn it, they are so impressed about the introduction to this incredible cast of astronauts who've made such important contributions. But something in the making of this film that was always very important for Diego and I was that we were not telling, we were letting our subjects, our astronauts, tell their story, giving them agency to write their history. And that's so important because the history had not been told. It was wonderful to see not just names that people will be familiar with in terms of, say, Charlie Bolden, because not only was he an astronaut, many people will know him as you know being their chief administrator at NASA, but also those names that particularly to a perhaps a non-US audience or maybe to a US audience as well are not so well known. It looks as if everyone you approached wanted to talk and and in many cases be quite outspoken. That was definitely the case and one of the things that um, surprised us in a way about the making of the film was that every time we approached one of these astronauts and let's say we first went to the first black astronaut and said, we wanted to tell your story. And he said, well, you can't possibly tell my story if you don't tell the story of these other 
folks that came into the program at the same time I did, because either one of us could have been the first. So the first is just sort of irrelevant to me. If you want to understand my story, there's these other people. Then we would go to the next two, and, and one of them would say, well, you can't possibly tell my story if you don't look at the past and discover that there was someone else in the 60s. And so it really became a chain where every person would send us to the next one and the next one, and that's how the film developed, and, and this idea of a connection, an intergenerational connection and a thread that talks about legacy um, came along. And you mentioned the 1960s. I mean, I, to my mind, this is really the story of Ed Dwight, who features throughout the film. He should have been the first black astronaut. And I guess, Lisa, this is an absolutely forgotten story. And yet you, you, you have news footage of him on the news in the States, on the covers of magazines. I didn't know his, he even existed. It's funny when you talk to some people now, they're more familiar with Ed Dwight in his second career as a great sculptor, capturing images of African-Americans during the settlement of the West, the Buffalo Soldiers. And the ability in this film to interview Ed Dwight now, but also to have great visual references for when he was in the program. And I think capturing some of the most poignant moments in his career is something that adds to the intimacy of the film and to the emotionality of Ed's journey and what he very candidly shared with us. He had the right stuff, effectively. Absolutely. In in 1963, he was an astronaut candidate who unfortunately was not able to continue with the program due to, you know, the unsurmountable walls of systemic racism. He was a Kennedy's person. And when Kennedy was assassinated, so much of the political infrastructure that had supported this incredible step forward for America to have an African-American astronaut disappeared with Kennedy's assassination. But before then, I mean, we're not talking because often, you know, and women get this as well, if if women are suddenly included in something, you get a section of society who think, oh, they must have, um, you know, downgraded the qualifications needed slightly or, or you know, it's, it's positive um, discrimination. But I think we need to make clear here that, you know, Ed went through exactly the same sort of background as as everybody else. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ed Dwight came from the Air Force. He was a cum laude graduate with a degree in aeronautical engineering. He completed the courses for experimental test pilot and aerospace research at Edwards Air Force Base. And so he had all of the qualifications that his white peers did. Despite that, he had a lot of internal struggles. He talks a lot about his struggles with uh, Chuck Yeager. But Ed Dwight was an incredibly qualified Black person who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. As he always says, if he had come around 20 years later, there would have been enough social progress in the U.S. that would have supported his visibility and 
his right to be considered and really embraced as an astronaut candidate. And Diego, when you spoke to him, he had a, a brutal time at Edwards Air Force Base under Chuck Yeager. But he doesn't seem to blame Yeager for that. I mean, Yeager sounds like a bit of a monster the more you, the more you hear about I, him. I was disappointed in that. I mean, that was a great part of the film because it actually did make both of us sort of go, <gasps> and then take a breath because we're so used to thinking of, thinking of Chuck Yeager as, as a hero. You must be amazed because how... Yeah, how Ed Dwight is, his, his manner, he's not, he doesn't seem bitter about this. History oftentimes is written as a linear, simplified version of events. And then I think the wonderful uh, thing in this film is in talking to Ed Dwight, who's so eloquent, he is capable of telling us that reality is more complex. And he likes to talk about that. It's more nuanced. It's not, you know, one single thing. It's many things happening at once. I think Ed was caught in between so many things that were happening in society at the time. And so I think with time, he's maybe mellowed. I mean, you can only imagine when you're trying to achieve something so difficult and you're the only one, the only black astronaut amongst, you know, just so many other people that look at you thinking you were giving an advantage. So to not achieve his mission, it's, it's probably the most frustrating and infuriating thing. But over time... I think he sees the fuller picture, which is there were so many things at play. And he was just an incredible individual thrown in the middle of these absolutely incredible political events that were much bigger than him in a way. And so he had, to a degree, no control over the outcome of, you know, he tried his best. But um, I think that's what you see in the film. That's what's extraordinary about him, I think, apart from the fact that he's in his early 90s and is as bright as a button (laughs) in terms of is is this sort of intelligence and grace and understanding, but you can still see the glimmers of the unfairness of it all and, and the racism that he had to counter. I just thought what a strength of character he must have had because he was set up to fail. Absolutely. And I think it's not just Ed Dwight. In this film, we cover multiple generations of um, African-American astronauts. And I think that's a constant. All of them are the most incredible individuals that humanity has produced. These are people that are multi-hyphenate. They all have tremendous careers in many different areas at the same time, not just one. And Ed, for example, as Lisa was mentioning earlier, after all of these happened, that would have been enough. Trying to go through all of that in life, that would be your highlight. And, and instead, he bounced back, became an artist from zero. He started from zero and, and became one of the most celebrated sculptures retelling these narratives that were hidden or erased from history. So that proves just how incredible they are. There are many lives into one. I must admit, as someone who's written about the, the Mercury 13 and, and Wally Funk and the sort of <laughs> trials and tribulations they had to try and get into space, a lot of what I saw did remind me of that. Um, like you were saying that, you know, it was at, at the wrong time. It felt that way with the, the women too in the early 60s who were there and qualified and willing and able. It's just that society wasn't quite ready for them. What would you say was the big change that started to show a, a glimmer of, of light? I think there's a, a couple of things that, that happen. Culture changes, society changes. You know, there is the progress that Americans begin to enjoy 
after the civil rights movement. To go from being segregated to not segregated is a big part of the time that we are looking at in our film. As culture changes, as opportunities open up, as NASA enlists Nichelle Nichols to engage with minority communities, and then we have the shuttle. All of those cultural moments are dri- with the space program are driving us towards the shuttle, what the shuttle represented, and the opportunities for people who were not Air Force pilots, you know, but were teachers, were scientists, to become astronauts. Yeah, I must admit, when Nichelle Nichols's face appears on screen, your heart does melt anyway. Whenever, well, mine does anyway whenever I, I see her. But what I loved was I'm so used to reading about women and people like Mae Jemison, black women who, who talk about how, you know, she inspired them to um, become an astronaut. But it was lovely to hear the male astronauts, black men, say the impact that she'd had on them too. Fred Gregory was especially effusive in the film, but everyone that we spoke to, they all spoke about how seeing her gave them a great sense of possibility in a time when the definition of the right stuff before was purely that of white males. We all know that the importance of representation, it's a big part of why we made you know this film so that people can understand this history, the contributions, and also, I think, take a lot of pride in um, the sacrifices made, but how it has benefited humankind. I wanted to ask you about that. Does that make a difference? Is it one of those things, you know, there's that phrase, isn't it? You see it, you can be it. You know, when Diego and I screen the film and we are accompanied by our astronauts, whether it's Leland Melvin or Victor Glover. What's always so interesting is the range of people who want to meet them, and especially the young kids who almost are like, oh, we want to touch this astronaut and confirm that they're real. You see this transference with young people, uh, especially young people of color, who it means so much to be in the presence of someone who, you know, there's only been 18 African-Americans who have flown in space. So these are not only incredible people, but they're also existing in this incredibly rarefied group. When we're in their presence, we see the transformation that happens with their physical being and the reaction that they get from these young people who are just like, Wow, you're real. You did it. If we use the sports metaphor, it's like like seeing, you know, a Messi. If if you're, you know, Latino and you get to see someone that speaks your language or has the same background as you, you think that is possible. But if you only saw players from another side of the world, then you might think it's not your thing. And so widening who gets to be part of the space program is just a great way to offer every kid the opportunity to see themselves and, and think that they can achieve those things. And that's really, I mean, listening to these astronauts, they all tell us that's humanity's future. We're all going to space. And so we've got to make sure that everyone has um, place in that future. 
Diego Hurtado de Mendoza and Lisa Cortez, directors of the new documentary, The Space Race. Now, the film is currently doing the rounds of the film festival, so you may get to see it. But it's been bought by National Geographic, so it'll be on Disney+. Plus. think pretty much everywhere in the coming months. We'll, we'll let you know about that. As you can probably tell from the interview, <laughs> we really liked it. I mean, it was one of those films. I mean, documentaries can be can be tricky to tricky watches sometimes but i have to say as we settled down to watch it no one was on their phone it was really really (laughs) compelling story thing with me isn't it yes would i get distracted and be on twitter facebook um duolingo you name it yeah but no one was on their phone and everyone watched it and it's great really really good and i I think the ed dwight story is extraordinary yes um amazing characters I mean, you know, I think we've already discussed it. It's how frank they are. They got brilliant interviews. Um, It was just wonderful to hear people be honest. And and you can tell, can't you? Because often, particularly astronauts, they're so media trained as to not quite sound human. You know, you sometimes want a bit of a flaw in there, a bit of emotion, um, not something that you know they've said 45 million times already. I mean, you can't blame them because they will have said it 45 million times already. But as this is a story that actually has not been told very often, that probably contributed to the fact that it was real and you felt it and you could still feel in some cases the understandable sort of frustration or bitterness or or anger or and in some cases like yeah whatever it's you know it's gone it's gone so, so that whole range of emotions to hear was very powerful i would say particularly charlie bolden and i've interviewed yes, him yes. Uh, so i made a program i guess it's about 18 months ago now a couple of years ago called the equal rights stuff which is still on bbc sounds and bbc website um it's um the equal rights stuff for BBC World Service, which yeah, was so you uh, must presented to by Nicole Stott. So that's something to, yeah. that you can listen to right now, which has some of the story, although we didn't get into Ed Dwight. But we interviewed, or I interviewed actually, Charlie Bolden mm-hmm. for that, former administrator, who you heard in that uh, trailer for the for the film there. And when I interviewed him, he was definitely still angry yeah. about the, the injustices. And it does, it, it does make you angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does make you angry that Guy Bluford was the first. <laughs> and you look at, I didn't know the story of Ed Dwight. Maybe I should have done. But, you know, absolutely had the right stuff, as that we said. In, uh, as you said. That, yeah. Like, uh, you know, yes, absolutely. Someone should do another Hidden Figures type yeah. film um, of that because it's a, it's a great drama. And the way he was treated by Chuck Yeager and, in fact, the whole class at Edwards Air Force Base in the 1960s is is appalling. Mm. And it's recent history. Yeah. That's what always gets me with the uh, the racism in America. It's, it's recent history. It, what's also astonishing, though, is that NASA is nothing like that now, which is just as well, really. Although maybe people listening are like thing, oh, really, you think so? Because you could never discount no, anyone's I think, experiences. I would say but that's. I would say that's true, and that's something that definitely came out in, so in the documentary I made. Company, when yeah. you when you go there, it's it's yeah. it's, it's pretty impressive from that. So the space race, um, you'll have a look for it at film festivals. Definitely worth seeing, but it will be on Disney Plus later in the year. And in the meantime, the equal rights stuff on BBC World Service, which is still up there, uh, the half-hour documentary, which I'm 
I'm very pleased with. And presented by astronaut Nicole, Nicole Stott. Stott. Our lovely friend Nicole, Nicole Stott. We love yeah. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Well, it is great to see missions to the moon leading the headlines again, uh, leading BBC bulletins, leading in newspapers after India's successful landing on the lunar South Pole. And uh, so the reason I did the BBC Persian interview was to talk about that mission. I also did interviews, uh, another interview with the BBC, an interview with the Naked Scientist podcast, which goes on Five Live. And it's just what I was saying in this, because it can be painted as a India patriotism story patriotic india well, doing this <laughs> let's but, face it prime minister um, modi uh, he he didn't well, undersell it <laughs> no, no they're going to make the most of that but it's this is what i said on the interviews i did for the bbc and elsewhere it's globally significant hmm. so india becomes the fourth nation to successfully soft land on the moon That's after so former soviet union china and us yes obviously the us mm-hmm. but it's globally significant because it's the first to soft land at the South Pole. Which... And the South Pole, as we know, is where where the Kaching is. The uh, the parts of the South Pole are permanently in shadow, and so this is where you're much more likely. Well, they've identified anyway that the pretty sure there's lots of ice down there. If you've got permanently sh- shattered craters, then you've got more chance of getting your your um, ice and then water and then you've got potentially fuel as well for a future moon base. And it's where NASA is heading on Artemis 3. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is. If they can I, ever build I a love, lander that works. I love the fact that one, um, I saw one, one, one report. I mean, it was from Mashable. So it's, uh, obviously there's a, a tongue in cheek aspect to it here where it said India shares uh, video proof of its <laughs> moon lunar landing. And I thought, actually, you know, it, it, it's, there's, there's a joke in there that, that's got with the number of, uh, you know, lunar landing deniers there is a thing it's like well if you don't see it so i i did i thought okay i'm gonna look at that video um again because i'd seen all that you know yay this has happened but i hadn't actually watched the, the video yet until i saw uh read that piece where it likened the picture of the lander with its leg out to being as significant as Anja jolie with her leg leg out at the oscar uh, pictures which which really made me laugh so i watched this video and it, it's amazing because the backdrop of the moon obviously is grey and monochrome and you see these lovely little craters um, but they're not in detail because it's the background it's the foreground which is of the, the lander coming down which has got a bit of a sort of gold foil bit so it's almost like you've got a colour bit superimposed on black and white and I hate to say it, it did look like an animation <laughs> I thought oh no, I've watched this video which is supposed to be proof of a lunar landing and I thought oh there's going to be an awful lot of people watching that to go that's not real well, that's, <laughs> that's the problem, without it wishing is. to get into the conspiracy it, theories. The problem is. with the, the particularly the, the higher res pictures yeah. you see later on is because everything looks weird on the moon because you've got these extreme shadows mm. and because you've got no atmosphere. And the coloration. And the coloration and, and everything, and everything yeah. it really picks it out. So, yeah, let's not talk about moon <laughs> landing conspiracy <laughs> but, yeah, theories. But, but, but if, if, you felt, if you saw it, you thought the yeah. same too. Let us know. But I, I think it's also an opportunity to recognise the Soviet Union's achievements of landing on landing on the moon. And I'm, when I mean this, not Russia, I mean the Soviet Union mm. here, given that the, the person behind the whole landing program and the whole rocket program in the Soviet Union was 
mm. Ukrainian. And there's all these little lo- their lunar Sergei, pod Sergei rovers Korolev. Yeah. dotted across exactly. the I mean, lunar you know, surface. We shouldn't forget the first soft landing on the moon was the Soviet Union, Luna 9 in 1966. Mm-hmm. And then you still had these extraordinary rovers. If you've ever seen one, we saw one in the museum in Zagreb. Oh, yeah. Um, if you ever get to see one in a, they're, they're sort of scattered a lot. The, the the sort of engineering models in museums, often in uh, parts of what was the sort of former Eastern Europe, yeah. um, the former Soviet Union, all the satellite countries, you can often see them. So there is one in the in science Croatia. museum in, in Zagreb <laughs> in Croatia, and they're huge. Mm. They're absolutely massive. These these landers, you know, and you could see, well, Soviet Union wasn't far off being able to land a, a person on the moon if they can land something that sizable. Very impressive rovers. So it was a sort of opportunity to remind people that the moon doesn't just belong to the United States. Yeah. And the Indian rover, which has got a lovely name. I, I'm not 100% sure of the pronunciation because, I've only, again, I've only read it rather than heard it. Pragrat, uh, I can't even say it, can I? Pragyayan, I think that is, which is Sanskrit for wisdom. Um, it's going to be doing various experiments for 14 days, 14 lunar, 14, one lunar day, which is 14 Earth yeah. days. And we also should pay tribute to China with Changi 5 because that mission three years ago in 2020, that was the first mission to collect lunar rock in 40 years. So it is all of a sudden... You know, we've had uh, China collect lunar samples. Uh, now we've got India there. We've got America going back to these. Yes, it's it's very exciting again. It's funny, I didn't, because like many people, you, you know, you can remember it first time round. I can't. Uh, you can't. Yeah, we don't, who cares? Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, and I thought, oh, well, being there, and I know I've been a bit cynical sometimes, like, well, being there, done that. We've already done it. We've already done it. And I know there's so much more science to find and do. And I do want a lunar base. I love the thought of that. I didn't expect to be as excited as I was knowing that India had got on the moon. Well, if they can get the Starship, the Elon Musk Starship, which is meant to be the lander, if they can get it working, if they actually get it up into space without it blowing up, then that is extraordinary in terms of its size. So, you know, the idea is only two astronauts will land on the moon in Artemis three, But it's a huge spacecraft. There is a massive amount of space inside it. It's like a proper old rocket ship. Mm-hmm. So there is room for laboratories, for sleeping quarters. You know, it really does look like a proper rocket. If they can get that on the moon, you've effectively got a lunar base instantly there. But will they have a shower like Space Lab? Skylab. Skylab, yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> world's worst space invention. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. You could have a shower on the moon, though, because there's gravity. Yeah. So it actually would work. You'd would probably hijack It might look gorgeous. It might be much... The, the water would be coming down in like the Matrix in slow motion or yeah. something. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, another big space story in the past month has been the demise of ESA's Iolus satellite during a controlled re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Launched in 2018, the satellite had been the first to measure the winds sweeping around the planet. But with the satellite almost out of fuel, mission controllers decided that rather than let it crash down to Earth when its orbit degenerated, they would instead control its descent through the atmosphere so any debris fell into the deep ocean. And not only that, ESA have also commissioned a composer 
to write a piece of music using data from the mission. Our new producer, Katie Porter. Hello, Katie. Has brought the two stories together for us. So you're about to hear the music, the composer, the mission controller, and this is best listened to with headphones. So enjoy. My name is Isabel Rojo. I was the AOLUS Flight Operations Director for the re-entry of the spacecraft. The person that coordinates the different teams are covering all different areas, so from spacecraft engineering to flight dynamics to computers on ground, antennas. So coordinating the entire operation. I'm Jamie Pereira. I'm a composer and sound artist and I composed and produced the Life of Aeolus uh, project, which was a sonification of the entire life of the Aeolus satellite, the European Space Agency satellite, for the time that it was in the air. The original Aeolus mission was the first satellite to acquire profiles of Earth's wind on a, on a global scale. So it was one of the Earth explorers that is a family of ESA satellites that explore different aspects of the Earth. I came with a different idea and then the news was broken to me that actually the European Space Agency has more than one satellite and the one that I was talking about hadn't really been created yet. So how about doing this with a satellite that means quite a lot to the space agency? I think the process of turning data into music is, I think it's very easy. If you imagine like a graph, a line graph, uh, and on the left-hand side, instead of uh, like whatever the values are, or as well as the values uh, on the y-axis, you imagine like a piano keyboard. Usually we're working in a temporal way, so time goes forward, and then as we hit points on the, the line graph that correspond with notes on the keyboard, this make-believe keyboard on the left-hand side, you play them. You know, so that's a very simple example of how we can sonify data, because we respond to sound in a in a different way it's much more emotional it was mind-boggling to find out exactly how much aeolus was taking in data wise i took the the data threads that seemed to be the most audience friendly and this is probably six or seven data threads out of maybe over a hundred different data types that that i could have chosen from and corresponded the data to the position or the ranges of different wind instruments in the orchestra. So the tops of clouds would correspond to a piccolo because it's the highest instrument. And then the, the next highest instrument is the flute. So that was the, the density of clouds. And then going into wind temperature, pressure and uh, velocity. And that was represented by clarinets and oboes down to the height of the earth, which was looks like, you know, let's use bass instruments. current director general 
has a zero space debris policy by 2030. And in view of the current guideline and regulations for reducing space debris, ESA thought that it was a consistent choice to perform the set of operations and to re-enter the spacecraft and at the same time trying to reduce the risk, which is already very reduced on ground. During the the Aeolus re-entry phase, I think I probably felt all possible emotions that are imaginable. So yeah, there was a lot of excitement involved. Yes, we were stressed, overworked, tired. We really wanted we really wanted to give it our best. So I think all teams had this very strong determination of making no mistakes, doing everything right, and trying until the very last minute. Particular moments of stress and tension, I guess one of the first ones was um, noticing that we had not predicted certain behaviours of some of the equipment on board, particularly the GPS. When slewing the spacecraft to the retrograde attitude, which enables us to actually reduce the speed of the spacecraft and lower its orbit, the, the antennas on board don't have visibility of the network of GPS satellites. And that caused a reconfiguration of the GPS, which we weren't really expecting at that point in time. It made us have to rethink how to continue with the subsequent set of maneuvers, which were due a couple of days later. So that was quite the first first moment where I realized this is not gonna be an easy ride. Well, the moment when it finally re-enters Earth's atmosphere was very unspectacular, honestly, because we, from from the control room, from the main control room at ESOC, we, we have absolutely no visibility. So the only thing is we had the team of space debris office engineers working. Well, actually, that was when their actual hard, harder work um, started when they tried to determine a little bit more precisely where would potential area of impact be and so on and so forth. So for us, that moment was not particular because there was nothing to see. We were just waiting for confirmation on the visibilities of the different radars on ground. And when we got some confirmation, then we had a better understanding that where, where it could have possibly entered. And then that was clearly a moment of relief to see okay the maneuvers executed that was that was very good that was extremely positive we all got very very excited about that it became an act of commemoration i suppose you know that there, there was elements of death that i could feel in terms of and that's like you know it's like we're talking about a piece of metal but you know it's obviously not it's it's got importance the feeling i had was like oh it's gone <laughs> you know and it was just a bit like okay it's over and i sort of just paused for a minute actually it was just like okay well it, it's gone but i guess we have this piece now to to remember it by
The Life of Aeolus, that's the music of Jamie Pereira. You can hear the full composition on the ESA website. It is very hypnotic. Thanks to ESA for letting us include the music in the podcast and also to Aeolus Operations Director Isabel Roja. And the feature was put together by Katie Porter quite a lot of credits there it is but yeah, yeah. It's, it's i love it actually i think that's one thing isa are really good at is that mix of an art form and um space whether it be the beautiful cartoons for rosetta and the landing which just totally took off and, and really engaged young people whether it was their short film as well for for you know reimagining the future looking back at the impact of Rosetta and then something like this is it's just um I, I I love it I think it's a great idea and it's they should do more of these things. Well, they've done a lot of linking up rock stars as well, haven't they? Because they had um, U2 linking mm. up with the space station, for example. They've yeah. done quite a lot in, in, the, in that regard as well. Yeah, I think they, they, they probably don't have a very big arts budget, but I, I would say they, they spend, spend it, it well. They yes, do. they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. Spend it very well. Yeah. And, it, and it's good because, as we've mentioned so many times before, and I'm sure our listeners don't need to be reminded of it, is that... Unfortunately, there is still a large proportion of the population who don't quite get it that people who are interested in science and space and engineering and work in those areas are often so artistic and into music and art in all its forms. And, you know, it's it's not a sort of just, you know, that's it. That's all they do is do their, their rockets. It's not. So it really embraces the creativity in all its forms, which can be mathematical within science itself, within, you know, biology, chemistry, but also within what we associate with the artistic forms of creativity, be it art or music. I love it. Mm. It's been quite a deep episode, hasn't it? For you, yeah. You know, it's just a normal day for me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's unnecessary. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, that's Space Boffins. Uh, we actually do have a plan for the next few months. We do actually know what's coming up, but we won't tease you with it now. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it is, I, I do know some of it, don't I? Which yeah. is why you don't tell me. I'm a bit like the... Um, What's his name? The Tom Holland of uh, Space Boffins. Is, uh, well, you, you give away you all can't, the you give away all spoilers. Yeah, you can't yeah. tell me anything. It's yeah. like, don't, whatever you do, Sue, don't mention that. Yeah. That will be at the forefront of my mind and we'll be yeah. waiting to be blurted out at the earliest opportunity. But yes, unbelievably, we do actually have a plan. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound condescending or patronising in any way or to put you on the spot or to demean you, but would you like to say goodbye to uh, all our podcast listeners now in Persian, Rich? <laughs> as I say, no? oh. uh, as I say, unnecessary. <laughs> that's Space Boffins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>